Welcome to Soho Bites, a Soho on Screen podcast. I'm Jingan Young, a writer and researcher of London's Soho in post-war British cinema. In each episode, I invite a special guest on to talk about their favorite Soho film. And for episode three, I talk to Henry Miller, a researcher on the Stephen Dworskin project at the University of Reading. Henry is also a regular contributor to Sight and Sound magazine and the editor of the essential Raymond Durdnet, available from all good bookshops. We sat down at the Curzon Soho Cinema for a coffee or two to talk about Stephen Dworskin's 1972 experimental film, Dynamo. I'm working on a research project about Stephen Dworskin, who is an American filmmaker who came to London in the mid-60s as a young man. Um, he was a graphic designer, and he'd already made some underground films in New York around the New York Filmmakers Co-op, so he was associated with people like Jonas Mikas, uh, Shirley Clark, Andy Warhol, um, Yvonne Rayner, at that point a dancer, um, and he came here with some films in his trunk, which he'd made uh, back in the States, which he then didn't show for a few years. He worked in graphic design, he was on Fulbright Scholarship here researching graphic design, but eventually he discovered Kindred Spirits, and together they formed the London Filmmakers Co-op. And that is, I guess, the first sort of Soho connection for Stephen Dworskin, that they were based in a bookshop, the London Filmmakers Co-op, on uh, Charing Cross Road, or the corner of Charing Cross Road and New Compton Street, which I think is plausible. You can call that Soho. It's on the east side of Charing Cross Road, but let's just call that Soho, which is opposite St. Martin's, which at that point was on the west side of Charing Cross Road. And that's, that's definitely Soho. Um, and so he continued to make short films. So most of these films are of, of women on their own. Um, and what's at stake in the films is the relationship between the filmmaker behind the camera and the women who are mostly people Doskin knew, and often they're his lovers, but sometimes they're friends. Um, and these films, eventually they won him a prize at the, the Nokia famous experimental film festival in Belgium, the Nokia film festival in 1967-68. Um, and then, then he started to make full-length films. Um, which for an underground filmmaker is a, is a big step. It, it involves more money, obviously. And it raises a question of where you show the films. You can't continue to show feature-length films in the basement of a bookshop to a small group of other filmmakers. You have to find some other kind of outlook. Um, and that brings us to the film he made in 1971, Dynamo, which is probably the most Soho film that Stephen Droskin made. Um, but to, to talk about its Soho connections involves talking about its origins as a stage play, um, which had been performed by the Soho Theatre rather than at the Soho Theatre. Earlier that summer in 1971, um, it was Toskin's career owes a lot to the changes in censorship regimes, but at that point, in 19, the early 1970s, um, the relaxation of stage censorship, which had taken place in 1968, uh, had kind of unleashed this great wave of young playwrights. Um, it totally shook up British theatre. And it was a, just a lot happening, to the extent that there were 
theatres operating at lunchtime. This was a, a big phenomenon of the early 70s. Um, and the Soho Theatre was just one of these. And it was formed, originally it's called the Soho Lunchtime Theatre. And it operated out of an address initially, at, at also at 6 New Compton Street. So it must, be, must have been very near Better Books. And that, um, in the words of the guy in Spinal Tap, don't look for it, it's not there anymore. None of New Compton Street or that part of it is, is there anymore. But this Soho Lunchtime Theatre, it's formed by Verity Bargate and Fred Pound. Um, and eventually it became what is now the Soho Theatre, which is on Dean Street in, in Central Soho, which is a permanent venue with quite high profile um, productions. I think the Fleabag was, was performed and things like this. But at that point, it's a kind of um, peripatetic theatre. It moves around. So it's, it's in New Compton Street for a while, and interestingly, Stephen Goskin shows his short films there at one point. Um, which, it is, it is, films are all in 60mm, they, they don't get shown in cinemas, they get shown in arts venues, places like the Institute of Contemporary Arts, things like that. Um, and so they're shown at the, the Soho Lunchtime Theatre. By 1971, the Soho Lunchtime Theatre is operating out of the King's Head pub uh, in Upper Street in Islington, um, which at that point is kind of up-and-coming trendy neighbourhood, I suppose, not unlike Notting Hill, where Stephen Droskin lived. It's slightly bohemian. Um, and so the play Dynamo, which becomes Droskin's film, the one which I'm going to talk about, although as a film it's called Dynamo, the gap for some reason, between the two syllables. Dynamo is performed there in summer of 71 and is written by a playwright called Chris Wilkinson. Uh, he's coming out of Sheffield. He works, um, I think, through the Sheffield Playhouse. It's one of about four films, that, uh, four plays that he has performed in London that year. Wilkinson makes this big impact on London theatre. He's one of the playwrights who's coming, part of this kind of post-censorship wave. Uh, some of his things are performed by the Portable Theatre, which is was also the launch pad for. Uh, David Hare and Howard Brenton, and maybe David Decker, I can't really remember, but people like David Hare and, and Howard Brenton, who are now, of course, David Hare's kind of ex-establishment playwright, but at that point is, is part of this um, part of this new wave of playwrights. Uh, he does, he, he his, some of his stuff is done at the um, King's Head Theatre as well. Uh, and Mike Lee is also is sort of part of the scene, he does lunchtime plays. Um, but Chris Wilkinson is, is taken up by the Portable Theatre and is presented, his stuff is shown at the Royal Court even, uh, not as a major production. And Dynamo is shown at, uh, is, is presented as a lunchtime thing at King's Head. Um, and all of, his, all of his plays are extremely scandalising and shocking. And one of them also this summer is called I Was Hitler's Maid. Um, one of them is called Strip Jack Naked. And then Dynamo, uh, also just by the mainstream press, gets kind of disgusted reactions. It consists essentially it's of four, it's four strip teasers, or it takes the form of being an evening at um, a strip club. There's no, none of these plays were published, so far as I can tell, and I don't have my hands on a copy. Chris Wilkinson disappears from the scene, which kind of makes his big impact in 1971. Then he goes back to Sheffield and 
doesn't really write very many other plays. He was in Coronation Street as an actor. But um, Dynamo, so far as I can tell from the reviews, um, the audience would see the stage of the strip club and also see the backstage area. And there is interaction between the strippers, who are played by actresses, uh, and the, the male, uh, the men who run the establishment. Um, and the first three strip teasers, so again, so far as one can tell from the reviews, are relatively quote unquote conventional. And then it's the fourth strip tease in which the, the character, the, the woman at the centre of it, is called Dynamo, turns into something else. And this being a Chris Wilkinson play, it turns into a parable about the Algerian civil war of the 50s and 60s. And so the stripper, initially she's in character as, um, as a boy who arrives home to find four policemen waiting for him and is then tortured by the police in a manner akin to uh, the French forces in the Algerian Civil War. And, well, that's that on that. And this takes up most of it. And obviously we're moving from a sort of quote-unquote realistic depiction of stripping to something else, something, some sort of a parable. Um, some sort of symbolic play, which few of the reviewers uh, wanted to take very seriously. They didn't take very seriously. And I think it ends with a monologue by uh, Dynamo, who's played in, in, the, in, in the play as well as in the film by Linda Marlowe. Um, it, it's a monologue really decrying, I think, again, uh, decrying her condition and situation as a, as a stripper. Um, one of the reviews described this as being Godardian, which you'd have to make of that what you will. Um, and so this this was performed in July 1971, and it's uh, in tandem with the other Chris Wilkinson plays, which were which were being shown in London around the same time, um, not not in major West End productions or, or fringe productions, um, and created quite a stir in. Kind of the, in the alternative press, in, in, in Time Out magazine and things like that, even if the newspapers didn't particularly adore it. Um, so the idea kind of came up to, to turn this into a film. Um, and so some of the people involved in the Lunchtime Theatre um, were also involved in a community arts centre in, or a prospective community arts centre in King Street, Covent Garden, which Covent Garden's not really Soho, but it's not. If you're a, if you're a cricketer, you could probably sit within a stone's throw, almost near enough to Soho. So this was a prospective community arts centre that was a uh, kind of end of lease basement, which is very damp and unpleasant. And the hope was that an investment angel would be found to turn it into a multi-purpose arts venue akin to the Arts Lab, which is another. Uh, another venue that Roskin was associated with. So the Alternative Arts was the organisation based there at King Street and it involved, as I say, some of the Soho Theatre people but also Maggie Pinhorn, who was, um, she was a, a youngish set designer working in the, in the industry. She'd worked on one of the Bond films, so that you only live twice. And so it must have come from this, this sort of social scene um, that Maggie Pinhorn really took the lead in turning Dynamo um, into a film. And 
for this purpose, they turned to Stephen Droskin, who at that point in mid-71, he'd made one feature film, or one full-length film, about 80 minutes long, called Times Four, which the best-known person in it is Carolee Schneeman, who is herself an avant-garde filmmaker and performance artist from New York. And that film had been shown um, in a few contexts, in a few kind of film clubs, um, at a few film festivals. Um, it had been first shown in September 1970. So by the summer of 1971, Doskin is one of the most prominent underground filmmakers in London, if that's not a contradiction in terms. And he also is the ideal person to turn this into a film. The films that he'd made at that point are not not exactly strip teasers, but they're not far off it. What's going on in the film is this the relationship between the, the person behind the camera and the woman in front of it. All comes down to looks. It's, it's the engagement of the look of the woman that is kind of the central interest of the films. Um, conventional cinema, famous thing, actors and actresses don't look down the camera. The audience feels himself as a result not to be present or not to be acknowledged um, in scene. It's all taking place without their involvement. They are, uh, to use the language that would become common in the 70s, it's a voyeuristic pleasure. The, and the voyeurism comes from not being known to be there. The voyeur who's making eye contact with the person he's looking at is in a very different situation. Um, so in cinema, we get to be voyeurs. So with Dvoskin, and Laura Mulvey becomes a great champion of his work. Laura Mulvey um, says that the kind of the overt voyeurism of Dvoskin is, is what's interesting, is that the, the women in his films are looking directly at the down the camera, i.e. at the viewer. So the viewer finds himself to be implicated in this and has to decide what their relationship with the film image is. Um, and so he's the ideal person to make this film, uh, which is uh, for stripteasers. Um, and so it's shot comfortably, whatever else you can tell, it's com shot comfortably within Soho in a basement of what had been the strip club in Gerrard Street, which again is even closer. We're sitting right now on Shaftesbury Avenue, and the Gerrard Street is just a block over or so to the south. It's um, it's now kind of it's part of Chinatown, and this was underneath um, a Chinese supermarket. Uh, this is according. This is research from Jacqueline Holt. I've been working in the Doskin archive, which is at the University of Reading for almost six months and I still haven't found hard evidence of the exact location. It's very frustrating. But it's filmed in, uh, at nights in a basement in Gerrard Street in August of 1971. For that we had the uh, lab reports on the rushes that Oscar was shooting. And he'd had trouble with rushes and with getting, I mean, if, if you can imagine that shooting films which involve nudity uh, even at this moment of relaxation of censorship can cause problems and Doskin had run into severe problems with his, his newest film Trixie uh, which was first shown in the summer of 1971 and which stars Beatrice Cordua aka Trixie and it's a half hour film uh, which again is, is um, 
highly charged. This was the one which Laura Mulvey took the most interest in. And yeah, Droskin had had huge trouble getting it um, processed by the film labs. They just thought this is, you know, what is this? Am I looking at, are we looking at porn here or what is this? Uh, with Trixie, the labs were reassured by the fact that it was going to be shown at the Edinburgh Film Festival and London Film Festival, august institutions giving it a guarantee of artiness. In fact, the Edinburgh Film Festival turned down Times 4 the year before, not the festival, but the, the city elders of Edinburgh who controlled the censorship there. Censorship in... Um, ooh, tricky one. Censorship in the United Kingdom, I'm going to say, is controlled by local authorities. It certainly isn't within England, but I'm going to assume it is in Scotland too. But at any rate, it was local authorities in Edinburgh who said Times 4, they 86 it, wasn't shown at the Edinburgh Film Festival 1970. So he's always skirting censorship. Anywho, that's just me saying that we've got Russia's reports telling us the exact dates of when this film was shot in a basement in Gerrard Street in August of 1971. Um, and so Doskin retained the cast of the, of the play. And in fact, there's a credit on the film for the play's director, um, Howard Panther, who's a regular, he's part of the Soho Theatre company. Um, and the lead actresses are, well there are four, as I said, there were four strip pieces and Linda Marlowe occupies a great majority of the film. Her bit is the most demanding and it's, actually it's really half the film, it's a more. It's a very long piece of, of uh, the film which I'll, I'll, I'll come to. But the first strip tease is performed by Jenny Runnaker, um, an outstanding actress who has been in the press recently um, because of the revival of Antonioni's masterpiece The Passenger, which she made a few years later. She plays the wife of Jack Nicholson's character. Um, and Jenny Ronnicker at this point is in a very strange kind of career position. She's only recently out of drama school, but she'd starred in uh, John Cassavetes' film Husbands, which had just come out in London earlier that summer in 1971. Husbands, it, it, it kind of in friends speak, is the one where they go to London. And of course she's... she's, she's uh, uh, actually, she's South African, but I mean, she's she's uh, um, encounters the kind of the Cassavetes gang, Peter Falk and so on, uh, and so she'd been in, in you know major production by a highly respected director Cassavetes. To me, I, I, I don't I don't have chapter and verse in this yet, but it's interesting to me that Joskin would work with her immediately after this. Joskin was from New York and he shadows Cassavetes famous um, feature debut from 1959 or so. It's a major film for Stephen Joskin as it was for all of the underground filmmakers of New York. Joskin would have seen it around the year that he, he graduated from design school when he was 20 years old. Um, and he, he has talked about this, how important Shadows was for him. And Cassavetes kind of is a model for people like your skin. Like, how do you make, how do you become an independent filmmaker? Just that. And, well, Cassavetes himself went off to Hollywood in the early 60s, and that didn't really work out so well for him. But by 1970, um, partly 
Cassavetes' Hollywood career as an actor enabled him to kind of support himself while making these films. So he'd been in even The Dirty Dozen and um, Rosemary's Baby. And so you know, doing these kind of big ticket films enabled him to be an independent filmmaker. And Husbands is part of the kind of the great sequence of films that he made in the 70s. So Jenny Ronica had done that, but she was still kind of out there doing lunchtime theatre and things like this. Um, whether she'd, I don't know if Husbands had a press tour, but I, don't, anyway, I think that's an interesting juxtaposition. And so Jenny Ronica's... Has the, has the, she has the, the opening scene in, in Dynamo, which I think we're introduced to in, in, in quite an interesting way. The, like what kind of film we're going to encounter. Um, part of her act is interrupted by the credits. She plays over the credits, which are on, they're just, they're just um, title cards. But whenever we see a title card, we get, she's dancing, she's stripping to Rolling Stones song. But the titles kind of have this om- very ominous drone over them. And there's no kind of mitigating the cut. We cut from the ominous title with the ominous music back to the striptease. And so we know that something is, is, is in store for us, that this isn't going to be simply a striptease. And the song changes to a Phil Spector production, um, Zippy Duda, which is by... Bobby Socks, I forget the name of the band, but it's a Phil Spector, kind of a classic Phil, Phil Spector production. Um, both of which, The Stones and Phil Spector, I think mean that it's a difficult, difficult film to license in this day and age. God knows if they licensed these songs at the time, because it would involve Alan, probably not, not to include us on the podcast, it would involve getting a license out of Alan Klein. But anyway, this, this song continues, Hippity Duda. And again, it's a Jenny Runica is forming striptease, but the difference between a film and a play, and I think what makes the film, not just me, but it is what makes the film interesting, is that the film has a defined viewpoint on what is happening. I can't imagine what this was like in a theatre, but the film is always engaging with the actresses and their, their looks, with their faces. So Jenny Ronica, she is kind of looking past the camera. Um, she is in a position of power to some extent over the camera. She kind of treats it with contempt um, and is partly sort of contempt for her own job in a sense it's, it's sort of the she, she is doing her best to overcome the situation of being a, a, a stripper in this case um, and so she has this kind of wonderful snarl really but the music changes and the, the image changes it goes into most of this is done really in, in close up on her face so when I say that these are all strip teasers I'm slightly misleading uh, people as to what the content of this film is um, it does focus mostly on faces but with Jenny Ronica it turns into this extremely long close up and the music makes this wonderful transition um, which I think is very ahead of its time that the there's a bar from the Phil Spector song, which is 
just a kind of there's no vocals over it it's just a little bit of melody that is looped um, it, just, it turns into this loop from the Spectre record it can just continues and this is very much before digital technology and must have been done in post-production as a tape loop which is of course a, you know, a fashionable avant-garde composition technique um, and so this loop goes on it kind of grinding away and it's at this point that sort of the, the Jenny Ronica's character kind of really begins to engage with the, with the camera um, and the, the, this, this scene this sequence of the film ends really with ends with ends with her striptease uh, in which you know, the, the climax of the striptease is that she'll bear all the film doesn't show her doing this but that is how the how that sequence ends and the music which is composed by Gavin Bryars he's responsible for the drone and I assume is responsible for the looping of the Phil Spector the music turns into something rich and strange it's grows out of this loop into his own composition. Gavin Bryars is uh, one of the, kind of the leading experimental composers of the era um, and worked on many of Doskin's films and in fact lived in Doskin's house in Notting Hill. Um, and it was a very fruitful partnership. Gavin Bryars, uh, all of these soundtracks that he did for Doskin deserve to exist in their own right really and the one he did for Dynamo is particularly good um, and it, but the change in the soundtrack turns this film which is plausibly to begin with a film of the striptease into something utterly different uh, something very strange and laden with symbolism and obviously with some sort of ulterior purpose the music is often quite menacing You see this strange bifurcation between underground films, which will frequently have explicit sexual content, and then sex films, which are a different thing. I mean, this is, this is, is a subject of scholarship at the moment. But certainly in Time Out magazine, there's a division. So it has Time Out, which is for sort of trendy, free-thinking Londoners. It's a kind of hippie what's on guide in a way. It's, there's been what's on guides before Time Out, but Time Out does it for uh, a new kind of audience, the highly educated, alternative, um, probably with some verso books on their shelves, that kind of thing. And so Time Out has a section called Voyeur, which is a roundup of um, what's going on in the cinema, in the, in the smut cinemas of Soho of which there are a number, including around Gerrard Street. So it'll have that, but then it will have material on you know, kind of the underground film scene, which wasn't being covered in the newspapers. And Time Out's covering um, the various social movements of the time, which is women's liberation, gay liberation, um, movements around housing, anti-racism, all of these admirable things. But at the same time, it has a kind of complicated relationship with um, what is really the rise of pornography um, because it's the early 70s people are still kind of getting their heads around this uh, second wave feminism is kind of happening live as it were um, Dynamo is made around the same time as the protest at the Miss World contest 
and within a very you know it's Jermaine uh, Greer's female eunuch has recently been published, um, and so. I suppose a lot is in flux, culturally speaking, in the women's liberation movement, uh, if we like that phase of it, but the women's liberation movement for that generation is something which has recently started. Um, and so you might imagine from my description of the film, which can, you know, consists of four stripteases, one of which is an extended torture sequence, that this would not perhaps go down very well. The opposite is the case. This film is championed very much by the feminist critics of the early 70s. Um, it's written up in Spare Rib, which is the famous feminist magazine of the early 70s, and in Shrew, which was the journal of uh, Women's Liberation Workshop, which is also published in Soho from an address in Little Newport Street. Again, practically within Stone's Throw of where we sit here in Shaftesbury Avenue. Little Newport Street um, is just north of Leicester Square, kind of part of Chinatown now. Um, and yes, these films, uh, th th these films that Dawson was making, as I say, did win the admiration of, of, of feminist critics, partly because of really the way Laura Mulvey phrased it, is that he makes the voyeurism of, uh, of the cinematic apparatus to adopt some of the 70s terminology, it makes it overt. Um, there's no escaping what he is doing with these films. But, the, um, but also, in the case of Dynamo, it can be read as having, I mean, almost too easily read, as having a, a feminist message uh, in a more conventional sense, in that the fourth striptease degenerates into sheer torture. Um, and the acted out by the men who preside over the establishment. It becomes a, 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 a very much a surrealistic enterprise, not to be seen as a realistic depiction of that, but that's, that, that is sort of what is going on. Um, the film, I should probably have mentioned this earlier, has basically no, no dialogue. I think there might be one or two audible words and a few inaudible words, but it is a film without dialogue. Very few of Goskin's films from this period, 60s and 70s, have dialogue. Um, and so we get a couple of barks from the men who are kind of ordering the strippers on and off, that sort of thing. But that's it. Um, and so the monologue which Dynamo, the character, has in the play is, is gone. And from everything that I've read about the play, I think that's probably for the best. All of the, all of the context from the play is, is removed in the film, not just the dialogue, but I think to a modern audience, we don't really understand, we don't really perceive the fourth stripper Dynamo as being a boy. Uh, hair is um, made to look short, at any rate, in the first part of her act. And she's wearing, unlike the other strippers, she's kind of wearing, she's fully clothed to begin with, but she's kind of dressed in a Piero style. I don't know if we read it as being, oh, right, it's a boy now. Um, so we, we lose a lot of that context, and also because of our own shifting context of what a boy or a girl might dress like, uh, almost 50 years later. Um, 
And so the, the film is more open to interpretation. And from Doskin's point of view, and I think that this is about right, it's a film about the masks that we wear. And as a filmmaker, I've written about this in a recent blog post. He's one of his formative influences is really Ingmar Bergman, um, filmmaker, of course, obsessed with women's faces, but also a filmmaker in a tradition um, of, of Ibsen and this notion of um, peeling the onion, of removing the mask. And I think that's what Dorskin is trying with this film. It's, there's a hope of seeing through the face to the soul, um, which, because a, a, a stripper has to maintain, um, is to protect herself with a certain, by presenting a certain face, I suppose makes an appropriate subject for the, um, for a filmmaker of his tendency. Um, and so the Linda Marlowe sequence turns into an extremely long take, which is extremely uncomfortable to watch, of her having been kind of broken down by the male aggressor. It's, it's something like 10 minutes long, uh, in quite a close shot of her, her face, where what we're, what we're wondering as an audience is where does the act end and begin. Indeed, with the whole of this fourth sequence, we are wondering, is this a kind of elaborate, what, what is it we're watching here? Is this an elaborate strip tease? The other ones have been reasonably conventional. But the second two, Jenny Ronickers, she is wearing, I think it's difficult from this point to see that she's sort of in role. I don't really know what 1960s or 70s strippers kind of wore, but I mean, she's wearing like jeans. The next one, though, one of them is kind of has uh, a feather duster. We read her as being as a housewife. So there's an idea of here of social roles being broken down or um, being kind of in play with these stripteases. And so for the fourth one, though, it's not obvious what sort of social role that she's inhabiting. But clearly, we're watching something which is symbolic. She's um, the, the mask that she's presenting is being broken down, in very literal terms, by the the men of the establishment. And so I think uh, the, the camera is, is therefore sort of probing the face of the actress who is playing the stripper, who is playing a social role. And so we get this kind of chain of um, slippages between identities. That's, that's really where Doskin's interest in the project lies. Um, but as I said, there's a kind of a whole team behind this. It comes out of a... Um, the alternative culture of the early 70s. One side of that which we've discussed is the sort of fringe theatre. Another thing that it is part of is experimental music. As I say, this Gavin Bryce soundtrack, I think, is a really important piece of work that deserves to be known. Um, but it's also part of the alternative film scene of the early 1970s, which has a very, once again, a very strong Soho connection. Dawson's films, as I say, have been shown in kind of club environments or in, you know, often in, sometimes in bookshops rather than full auditoriums. They've been shown in film festivals. But with this film Dynamo, there's a real attempt to launch it upon the world. And so Maggie Pinhorn, who is the producer of the film, 
takes it to the Cannes Film Festival in 1972. This is not its debut. It had been shown at, the, uh, at a festival in Toulon. Uh, but Maggie Pinhold takes it to Cannes. And she takes it in concert with a new organisation at the time called The Other Cinema, a very important institution whose base was also in Little Newport Street. The, this premises in Little Newport Street was shared by the Women's Liberation Workshop, um, The Other Cinema, and the magazine After Image. And who knows what else? It's on about four stories, but still. Anyway, The Other Cinema was set up around 1969 70 partly because of a conference with the leading, one of the leading voices in it was the late Albert Finney, um, which was to create a parallel cinema to, not only to the mainstream cinema, but also to the art house cinema. The art house cinema, places like, in those days, the Academy and the Curzon, they were showing respectable art films that you'd see at the Cannes Film Festival or Venice. This parallel cinema that the, art, the other cinema would, wanted to promote was something else. It was more political, more edgy, um, and it would incorporate also sort of non-narrative, non-ground film. So the other cinema, plus Maggie Pinhall, and the other cinema was, at this point, a small number of people, but Nick Hart-Williams was the person who went to Cannes, went out with Maggie Pinhall to Cannes to try and sell the other, to try and sell Dynamo as, I guess, as an art house movie. And um, they, they didn't. It was not, it was not a great success. Um, it did not, they did not strike six-figure deals or anything of the sort with international distributors. Actually, I don't know if six figures is a lot or a little at that point. Probably quite a lot in 1971, probably not so much now. But this is covered in a BBC documentary which follows Maggie Pinhall to Cannes and shows her, um, in a fairly comic way, not really prospering with the film. And it stages this encounter with the cigar-chewing American mogul Samuel Z. Arkoff, who's kind of associated with Roger Corman, so he's dealing in um, yeah, this kind of mid-low-budget American cinema, exploitation cinema, horror cinema, that sort of thing. So he might be in the market for a film which you can say, look at these girls on the poster, which is how movies are sold. But Samuel Z. Arkoff doesn't like what he sees. This film doesn't really deliver on what it promises, for one thing, and then it becomes uh, a confrontation with the audience. And so Samuel Zadarkov kind of has a sit-down with Maggie Pinhorn, who is uh, she's a young English woman, uh, very well-spoken, um, looks like Julie Christie, and Samuel Zadarkov really kind of puts her in her place. Um, but it's all, I mean, the entire thing is slightly played up. I haven't interviewed Maggie Pinhorn about it. It's clearly, though, somewhat of a setup on the part of the BBC documentary team. So Nick Hart Williams is not in the film at all. And so the, the other cinema, the organisation trying to sell it, is not really mentioned. It is partly a kind of a, a comic documentary. But Linda Marlowe flies out to Cannes and, and they, go, they go out handing flyers out on the street, all this sort of thing. Um, in the great hope that the film will be launched. And I think it's a tough sell at two hours. Um, but at any rate, it doesn't, it doesn't break out in that way. Uh, the film circulation is mostly uh, at festivals. It plays at Edinburgh and it plays at the London Film Festival in 1972. And in, um, to get into details, the other cinema at that point is mostly a distributor. Um, 
which occasionally takes up premises and shows films. At this point in 1972, it does not have premises, but there are other places like the Electric Cinema Club on Portobello Road, uh, where Dynamo is shown, and the ICA and, and kind of other arts institutions. So the film does actually get quite a fairly impressive circulation, given what, the nature of the thing. Um, and it's from these screenings, mostly from the, I think, from the Edinburgh Film Festival screening, from the London Film Festival screening, um, that it gets the kind of it, it gets the response from feminist critics in uh, Spirit and Shrew and so on, um, and also I think it's around it must be around then that, that that Laura Mulvey herself encounters it, um, and she. She, she, she departs to teach in the United States around this time in the autumn of 1972 and it's there in the US that she writes uh, her famous essay Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema which has its origins as a lecture that she gives in 1973 and the original so the story goes the original one of the original drafts of that famous essay involved a discussion of Stephen Dworskin that I think is possibly in the lecture um, so she is talking about Dorskin in, 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 in her, the, the essay itself, of course, is taken from Hitchcock, from Sternberg, um, famously, as it were, voyeuristic directors. Um, and she's talking about Dorskin as someone who, in a, very, in a non-narrative or basically non-narrative context, is doing the same kind of work on the look, on the male gaze. Yeah, 1971, I suppose, is this golden era of sleaze. Within alternative culture, um, it's when Jenny Runnicker and Linda Marlowe had both been in Kenneth Tynan's very successful West End production, O Calcutta, which was scandalous and sleazy and probably unrevivable. Um, and so, yes, the golden age of sleaze, but very much in the mainstream. So Soho is, in the centre, it's not really, it's, it's, it's actually called it the centre of the music scene, but it's a very important part of the music scene. It's historically the centre of the film scene, as any listeners to this will know. Wardle Street is kind of proverbially, it's a word meaning the British film industry. Um, but to have this film, which is very much not part of the British film industry, um, recorded in, filmed in, in Gerrard Street from a production company in Little Newport Street, um, I suppose that's slightly a sign of the times that Soho must be diversifying and the nature of image production is diversifying that Soho which has always been when we say it's the home of the British film industry of course it's not really a place where films are shot um, so th this film being shot in Soho makes a difference sorry I mean the studios of the British film industry are not in, in Soho uh, this one is shot in what I suppose we would call a makeshift studio rather than being, strictly speaking, on location. Um, but the Soho is, is probably always in a, in a state of churn. But, and also al always part of the film industry, not spoken about enough really, is the presence of the advertising industry. But I think that's becoming especially significant in the 60s and 70s, British advertising in... Um, 60s and 70s is, is all powerful. Um, by the end of that decade, of course, the Saatchis are the most prominent names in it, but by no means the only ones. Um, Ridley Scott Associates is based in Soho from the late 60s onwards. Um, 
But yes, you could go back much further in history to see Soho as the centre of advertising. Michael Balkin, when he starts producing in the early 20s, is in the advertising business, essentially. Um, and Steve Dworskin, too, is um, not totally apart from this. Yeah, underground film has a kind of a kinship with the, the world of porn cinema, but also with advertising. Uh, that the techniques of underground film come into advertising, but also that <laughs> underground filmmakers, including Droskin, might be tempted to work in the advertising industry. So Droskin has made an advert for Olivetti typewriters, a very fashionable brand at that point, and also for Carlsberg, producer of what I suppose was a, a relatively novel drink of lager. Um, actually, around this time, I think, around the time of Dynamo, he's made an industrial film about Carlsberg, which so far I've only heard the soundtrack of. I'm based at the University of Reading and was going through the Droskin papers, but there's also a handful of kind of unidentified films um, owned by the BFI, um, which is quite illuminating as to what his, his aims with the completed films are. You've been listening to Soho Bites, a Soho on Screen podcast. Please remember to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can follow my research at Soho on Screen. Thanks very much for listening.